0: chapter 66 part 1 of the history of the decline and fall of the roman empire volume 4 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the history of the decline and fall of the roman empire volume 6 by edward gibbon chapter 66 union of the greek and latin churches part 1 applications of the eastern emperors to the popes Visits to the West of John I, Manuel, and John II Paleologus, Union of the Greek and Latin Churches promoted by the Council of Basel and concluded at Ferrara and Florence, State of literature at Constantinople, its revival in Italy by the Greek fugitives, Curiosity and emulation of the Latins in the last four centuries of the Greek emperors their friendly or hostile aspect towards the pope and the latins may be observed as the thermometer of their prosperity or distress as the scale of the rise and fall of the barbarian dynasties when the turks of the house of seljuk pervaded asia and threatened constantinople as we have seen at the council of placentia the suppliant ambassadors of alexius imploring the protection of the common father of the christians no sooner had the arms of the french pilgrims removed the sultan from nice to iconium then the Greek princes resumed, or avowed, their genuine hatred and contempt for the schismatics of the West, which precipitated the first downfall of their empire. The date of the mogul invasion is marked in the soft and charitable language of Zon Vatices. After the recovery of Constantinople, the throne of the first Paleologus was encompassed by foreign and domestic enemies. As long as the sword of Charles was suspended over his head, he basely courted the favor of the Roman pontiff, and sacrificed to the present danger his faith, his virtue, and the affection of his subjects. On the decease of Michael, the prince and the people asserted the independence of their church, and the purity of their creed. The elder Andronicus neither feared nor loved the Latins. In his last distress, pride was the safeguard of superstition. Nor could he decently retract in his age the firm and orthodox declarations of his youth." his grandson the younger andronicus was less a slave in his temper and situation and the conquest of bithynia by the turks admonished him to seek a temporal and spiritual alliance with the western princes after a separation and silence of fifty years a secret agent the monk barlam was despatched to pope benedict the twelfth and his artful instructions appear to have been drawn by the master hand of the great domestic most holy father was he commissioned to say the emperor is not less desirous than yourself of a union between the two churches, but in this delicate transaction he is obliged to respect his own dignity and the prejudices of his subjects. The ways of union are twofold, force and persuasion. Of force, the inefficacy has been already tried, since the Latins have subdued the empire without subduing the minds of the Greeks. The method of persuasion, though slow, is sure and permanent. A deputation of thirty or forty of our doctors would probably agree with those of the Vatican, in the love of truth and the unity of belief, but on their return, what would be the use, the recompense, of such an agreement? The scorn of their brethren, and the reproaches of a blind and obstinate nation. Yet that nation is accustomed to reverence the general councils which have fixed the articles of our faith, and if they reprobate the decrees of Lyon, it is because the eastern churches were neither heard nor represented in that arbitrary meeting. For this salutary end, it will be expedient, even necessary, that a well-chosen legate should be sent into Greece, to convene the patriarchs of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, and with their aid to prepare a free and universal synod. But at this moment, continued the subtle agent, the empire is assaulted and endangered by the Turks, who have occupied four of the greatest cities of Anatolia. The Christian inhabitants have expressed a wish of returning to their allegiance and religion, but the forces and revenues of the emperor are insufficient for their deliverance, and the Roman legate must be accompanied or preceded by an army of franks, to expel the infidels and to open a way to the holy sepulchre. If the suspicious Latins should require some pledge, some previous effect of the sincerity of the Greeks, the answers of Barlam were perspicuous and rational. 1. A general synod can alone consummate the union of the churches, nor can such a synod be held till the three Oriental patriarchs, and a great number of his bishops, are enfranchised from the Mahometan yoke. 2. The Greeks are alienated by a long series of oppression and injury. They must be reconciled by some act of brotherly love, some effectual succour, which may fortify the authority and arguments of the Emperor, and the friends of the Union. 3. If some difference of faith or ceremony should be found incurable, the Greeks, however, are the disciples of Christ— and the Turks are the common enemies of the Christian name. The Armenians, Cyprians, and Rhodians are equally attacked, and it will become the piety of the French princes to draw their swords in the general defense of religion. For, should the subjects of Andronicus be treated as the worst of schismatics, of heretics, of pagans, a judicious policy may yet instruct the powers of the West to embrace a useful ally, to uphold a sinking empire, to guard the confines of Europe, and rather to join the Greeks against the Turks, than to expect the union of the Turkish arms with the troops and treasures of captive Greece. The reasons, the offers, and the demands of Andronicus were eluded with cold and stately indifference. The kings of France and Naples declined the dangers and glory of a crusade, the pope refused to call a new synod to determine old articles of faith, and his regard for the obsolete claims of the Latin emperor and clergy engaged him to use an offensive superscription to the moderator of the Greeks, and the persons who style themselves the patriarchs of the eastern churches. For such an embassy, a time and a character less propitious could not easily have been found. Benedict the Twelfth was a dull peasant, perplexed with scruples, and immersed in sloth and wine. His pride might enrich with a third crown the papal tiara, but he was alike unfit for the regal and the pastoral office. After the decease of Andronicus, while the Greeks were distracted by intestine war, they could not presume to agitate a general union of the Christians. But as soon as Cantacuzene had subdued and pardoned his enemies, he was anxious to justify, or at least extenuate, the introduction of the Turks into Europe, and the nuptials of his daughter with a mussulman prince. Two officers of state, with a Latin interpreter, were sent in his name to the Roman court, which was transplanted to Avignon, on the banks of the Rhone, during a period of seventy years. They represented the hard necessity which had urged him to embrace the alliance of the miscreants, and pronounced by his command the specious and edifying sounds of union and crusade. Pope Clement Sixth, the successor of Benedict, received them with hospitality and honor, acknowledged the innocence of their sovereign, excused his distress, applauded his magnanimity, and displayed a clear knowledge of the state and revolutions of the Greek empire, which he had imbibed from the honest accounts of a Savoyard lady, an attendant of the Empress Anne. If Clement was ill-endowed with the virtues of a priest, he possessed, however, the spirit and magnificence of a prince, whose liberal hand distributed benefices and kingdoms with equal facility. Under his reign Avignon was the seat of pomp and pleasure. In his youth he had surpassed the licentiousness of a baron, and the palace, nay, the bedchamber of the Pope, was adorned or polluted by the visits of his female favourites. The wars of France and England were adverse to the holy enterprise, but his vanity was amused by the splendid idea, and the Greek ambassadors returned with two Latin bishops, the ministers of the pontiff. On their arrival at Constantinople, the emperor and the nuncios admired each other's piety and eloquence, and their frequent conferences were filled with mutual praises and promises— by which both parties were amused, and neither could be deceived. "'I am delighted,' said the devout, cantacusine, "'with the project of our holy war, "'which must redound to my personal glory, "'as well as to the public benefit of Christendom. "'My dominions will give a free passage to the armies of France, "'my troops, my galleys, my treasures, "'shall be consecrated to the common cause, "'and happy would be my fate, "'could I deserve and obtain the crown of martyrdom.' words are insufficient to express the ardor with which I sigh for the reunion of the scattered members of Christ. If my death could avail, I would gladly present my sword in my neck. If the spiritual phoenix could arise from my ashes, I would erect the pile, and kindle the flame with my own hands. Yet the Greek emperor presumed to observe that the articles of faith which divided the two churches had been introduced by the pride and precipitation of the Latins, he disclaimed the servile and arbitrary step of the first paleologus, and firmly declared that he would never submit his conscience unless to the decrees of a free and universal synod. The situation of the times, continued he, will not allow the Pope and myself to meet either at Rome or Constantinople, but some maritime city may be chosen on the verge of the two empires, to unite the bishops, and to instruct the faithful, of the East and West. The nuncios seemed content with the proposition— and Cantacuzene affects to deplore the failure of his hopes which were soon overthrown by the death of clement and the different temper of his successor his own life was prolonged but it was prolonged in a cloister and except by his prayers the humble monk was incapable of directing the counsels of his pupil or the state yet of all the byzantine princes that pupil john Paleologus was the best disposed to embrace to believe and to obey the shepherds of the west his mother anne of savoy was baptized in the bosom of the latin church her marriage with andronicus imposed a change of name of apparel and of worship but her heart was still faithful to her country and religion she had formed the infancy of her son and she governed the emperor after his mind or at least his stature was enlarged to the size of man in the first year of his deliverance and restoration the turks were still masters of the hellespont the son of Cantacuzene was in arms at Adrianople and Paleologus could depend neither on himself nor on his people. By his mother's advice, and in the hope of foreign aid, he abjured the rights both of the Church and State, and the act of slavery, subscribed in purple ink, and sealed with the Golden Bull, was privately entrusted to an Italian agent. The first article of the treaty is an oath of fidelity and obedience to Innocent the Sixth and his successors, the supreme pontiffs of the Roman and Catholic Church, The emperor promises to entertain with due reverence their legates and nuncios, to assign a palace for their residence and a temple for their worship, and to deliver his second son Manuel as the hostage of the faith. For these condescensions he requires a prompt succor of fifteen galleys, with five hundred men-at-arms, and a thousand archers, to serve against his Christian and Muslim enemies. Paleologus engages to impose on his clergy and people the same spiritual yoke, but as the resistance of the Greeks might be justly foreseen, he adopts the two effectual methods of corruption in education. The legate was empowered to distribute the vacant benefices among the ecclesiastics who should subscribe to the creed of the Vatican. Three schools were instituted to instruct the youth of Constantinople in the language and doctrine of the Latins, and the name of Andronicus, the heir of the empire, was enrolled as the first student. Should he fail in the measures of persuasion or force, Theologus declares himself unworthy to reign transferred to the pope all regal and paternal authority and invests innocent with full power to regulate the family the government and the marriage of his son and successor but this treaty was neither executed nor published the roman galleys were as vain and imaginary as the submission of the greeks and it was only by secrecy that their sovereign escaped the dishonour of this fruitless humiliation the tempest of the turkish arms soon burst on his head and after the loss of Adrianople in Romania, he was enclosed in his capital, the vassal of the haughty Amaroth, with the miserable hope of being the last devoured by the savage. In his abject state, Paleologus embraced the resolution of embarking for Venice, and casting himself at the feet of the Pope. He was the first of the Byzantine princes who had ever visited the unknown regions of the West, yet in them alone could he seek consolation or relief, and with less violation of his dignity he might appear in the sacred college than at the ottoman port. After a long absence, the Roman pontiffs were returning from Avignon to the banks of the Tiber. Urban V, of a mild and virtuous character, encouraged or allowed the pilgrimage of the Greek prince, and within the same year enjoyed the glory of receiving in the Vatican the two imperial shadows who represented the majesty of Constantine and Charlemagne. In this suppliant visit, the Emperor of Constantinople, whose vanity was lost in his distress, gave more than could be expected of empty sounds and formal submissions. A previous trial was imposed, and in the presence of four cardinals, he acknowledged as a true Catholic, the supremacy of the Pope, and the double procession of the Holy Ghost. After this purification, he was introduced to a public audience in the church of St. Peter. Urban, in the midst of the cardinals, was seated on his throne. The Greek monarch, after three genuflections, devoutly kissed the feet, the hands and at length the mouth of the Holy Father, who celebrated High Mass in his presence, allowed him to lead the bridle of his mule, and treated him with the sumptuous banquet in the Vatican. The entertainment of Paleologus was friendly and honourable, yet some difference was observed between the emperors of the East and West, nor could the former be entitled to the rare privilege of chanting the gospel in the rank of a deacon. In favour of his proselyte, Urban strove to rekindle the zeal of the French king and the other powers of the West, but he found them cold in the general cause, and active only in their domestic quarrels. The last hope of the emperor was in an English mercenary, John Hawkwood, or Acuto, who, with a band of adventurers, the White Brotherhood, had ravaged Italy from the Alps to Calabria, sold his services to the hostile states, and incurred a just excommunication by shooting his arrows against the papal residents. A special license was granted to negotiate with the outlaw, but the forces or the spirit of hawkwood were unequal to the enterprise, and it was for the advantage, perhaps, of Paleologus to be disappointed of succour, that must have been costly, that could not be effectual, and which might have been dangerous. The disconsolate Greek prepared for his return, but even his return was impeded by a most ignominious obstacle. On his arrival at Venice he had borrowed large sums at exorbitant usury, but his coffers were empty, his creditors were impatient, and his person was detained as the best security for the payment. His eldest son, Andronicus, the regent of Constantinople, was repeatedly urged to exhaust every resource, and even by stripping the churches, to extricate his father from captivity and disgrace. But the unnatural youth was insensible of the disgrace, and secretly pleased with the captivity of the emperor. The state was poor, the clergy were obstinate, nor could some religious scruple be wanting to excuse the guilt of his indifference and delay. Such undutiful neglect was severely reproved by the piety of his brother Manuel, who instantly sold or mortgaged all that he possessed, embarked for Venice, relieved his father, and pledged his own freedom to be responsible for the debt. On his return to Constantinople, the parent and king distinguished his two sons with suitable rewards, but the faith and manners of the slothful Palaeologus had not been improved by his Roman pilgrimage, and his apostasy or conversion, devoid of any spiritual or temporal effects, was speedily forgotten by the Greeks and Latins. Thirty years after the return of Paleologus, his son and successor, Manuel, from a similar motive but on a larger scale, again visited the countries of the West. In a preceding chapter I have related his treaty with Bajazet, the violation of that treaty, the siege or blockade of Constantinople, and the French succor under the command of the gallant Bassical. By his ambassadors Manuel had solicited the Latin powers, and it was thought that the presence of a distressed monarch would draw tears and supplies from the hardest barbarians, and the marshal who advised the journey prepared the reception of the Byzantine prince. The land was occupied by the Turks, but the navigation of Venice was safe and open. Italy received him as the first, or at least as the second, of the Christian princes. Manuel was pitied as the champion and confessor of the faith, and the dignity of his behaviour prevented that pity from sinking into contempt. From Venice he proceeded to Padua and Pavia, and even the Duke of Milan, a secret ally of Bajazet, gave him safe and honourable conduct to the verge of his dominions. On the confines of France the royal officers undertook the care of his person, journey, and expenses, and two thousand of the richest citizens, in arms and on horseback, came forth to meet him as far as Charenton, in the neighbourhood of the capital." At the gates of Paris he was saluted by the chancellor and the parliament, and Charles the sixth, attended by his princes and nobles, welcomed his brother with a cordial embrace. The successor of Constantine was clothed in a robe of white silk and mounted on a milk-white steed, a circumstance in the French ceremonial of singular importance. The white color is considered as the symbol of sovereignty, and in a late visit the German emperor, after a haughty demand and a peevish refusal, had been reduced to content himself with a black courser. Manuel was lodged in the Louvre. A succession of feasts and balls, the pleasures of the banquet and the chase, were ingeniously varied by the politeness of the French, to display their magnificence, and amuse his grief. He was indulged in the liberty of his chapel, and the doctors of the Sorbonne were astonished, and possibly scandalized, by the language, the rites, and the vestments of his Greek clergy." but the slightest glance on the state of the kingdom must teach him to despair of any effectual assistance. The unfortunate Charles, though he enjoyed some lucid intervals, continually relapsed into furious or stupid insanity. The reins of government were alternately seized by his brother and uncle, the Dukes of Orléans and Burgundy, whose factious competition prepared the miseries of civil war. The former was a gay youth, dissolved in luxury and love. The latter was the father of John, Count of Navarre who had so lately been ransomed from Turkish captivity. And if the fearless son was ardent to revenge his defeat, the more prudent Burgundy was content with the cost and peril of the first experiment. When Manuel had satiated the curiosity, and perhaps fatigued the patience of the French, he resolved on a visit to the adjacent island. In his progress from Dover he was entertained at Canterbury with due reverence by the prior and monks of St. Austin, and, on Blackheath, King Henry the Fourth, with the English court, saluted the Greek hero, I copy our old historian, who, during many days, was lodged and treated in London as Emperor of the East. But the State of England was still more adverse to the design of the Holy War. In the same year, the hereditary sovereign had been deposed and murdered. The reigning prince was a successful usurper, whose ambition was punished by jealousy and remorse nor could Henry of Lancaster withdraw his person or forces from the defence of a throne incessantly shaken by conspiracy and rebellion. He pitied, he praised, he feasted, the emperor of Constantinople, but if the English monarch assumed the cross, it was only to appease his people, and perhaps his conscience, by the merit or semblance of his pious intention. Satisfied, however, with gifts and honours, Manuel returned to Paris, and after a residence of two years in the West, shaped his course through Germany and Italy, embarked at Venice, and patiently expected in the Moria, the moment of his ruin or deliverance. Yet he had escaped the ignominious necessity of offering his religion to public or private sale. The Latin church was distracted by the great schism. The kings, the nations, the universities of Europe were divided in their obedience between the popes of Rome and Avignon, and the emperor, anxious to conciliate the friendship of both parties, abstained from any correspondence with the indigent or unpopular rivals. His journey coincided with the year of the Jubilee, but he passed through Italy without desiring or deserving the plenary indulgence which abolished the guilt or penance of the sins of the faithful. The Roman Pope was offended by this neglect, accused him of irreverence to an image of Christ, and exhorted the princes of Italy to reject and abandon the obstinate schismatic. End of chapter 66, part 1